Amen. We are in week two now of the Advent season. And this season of Advent, we said last week, is a season of waiting. It's a season that's designed to cultivate in us, as we wait, an awareness of God's actions. An awareness of how God has been at work in the past, in the present, and in the future. And I said last week, in order to do that, what we're going to do is we're going to zoom out. And we're going to, instead of looking very closely at a few spots, we're going to look at broad swaths of scripture. We're going to look at broad pieces zoomed out so that we can see the big story that scripture is telling, that God is telling through his word. It's a bunch of stories all connected to tell a bigger story. A meta-narrative about God's actions, past, present, and future. Last week, we looked at Ephesians 1, and we saw Paul give praise to God. Blessed be God, because he has blessed us in Christ. And we saw him give this summary of the plot. The plot of the entire Bible. And in his summary, we saw that God has blessed us by choosing before history, choosing an eternity past to bless a people by creating them to be like him, creating them to be holy like him, and creating them to be with him, in fellowship with him, creating them for adoption as sons and daughters. And we saw in Ephesians 1 that the unfolding of this mystery is what happens in history, in time, right? How will God bless this people that he has created it's through the story of redemption that we see that and we look back on that story now knowing that the wondrous mystery is actually christ crucified but god's people didn't start there they didn't start knowing that and it helps us to understand and appreciate the significance to to praise god rightly to hope in this mystery rightly it helps us to look back at the beginning. So that's what we're going to do this week. We're going to start at the beginning and look at how some of this mystery unfolds, how God creates a people to be like him and a people to be with him. And the way God unfolds his plan, the way God unfolds his plan teaches his people to consistently ask two questions. So we're going to see that as we go through and we're going to learn to ask those questions as we see God's plan unfold. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1? Genesis chapter 1. We're going to start now in history and walk through some of the unfolding of God's plan. We're going to cover today Genesis 1 through about 15. So obviously I cannot read all of that text for us and still have time to say anything about it. So I'm going to summarize some of it for us and we'll, we'll dip in at pieces and read texts rather than starting by reading a text like we normally do. So Genesis 1 and 2, most of us are familiar with the story of creation, right? There's nothing, there's God, and in the beginning he creates the heavens and the earth and he fills them. And forms them, right? He says, let there be light, and there is light. He separates the light from the darkness. And he brings the waters and separates the waters. 
He does all this because he's creating this context for this people to be put in. Remember, his plan from eternity past is to create a people to be like him and with him. And in order to do that, they need a place where they can be like him and with him. So the story of Genesis 1 and 2 is really the story of God forming this place, what we know of as the Garden of Eden. He's forming this place and filling it with all of this beauty and all of this bounty. And in the midst of that creation, in Genesis 1, we read about him actually creating this people that he decided to create. So Genesis 1, 26 to 31 says this in the midst of the creation narrative. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life. I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning on the sixth day. And then the beginning of Genesis chapter 2, right? We read about God resting on the seventh day. He had completed his creation. And he looked out at all of it and said, this is very good. Because he had created man and woman to be like him, right? That's what it means when he says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. He created Adam and Eve to display his glory and his beauty to creation. Created them to be like him in what they do. Notice he calls them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and exercise dominion over it. God himself had already done that in creation, right? Being fruitful and multiplying his glory across creation and creating this beautiful, bountiful garden. He created them to be like him in what they do with working and keeping it. In Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. To cultivate beauty like God was already doing in creation. He also created Adam and Eve to be like him in their unashamed intimacy. Notice he says, In verse 18, it is not good that the man should be alone. Why is this not good? It's the first thing in creation he says is not good. Because God himself from eternity past has not been alone. He's been father, son, and spirit in fellowship. And so he says it's not good for man to be alone. So he creates Eve, right? And what do we read at the end of chapter 2? Verse 25, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. In other words, they had unashamed, joyful fellowship with one another. That's what God created. Man to be like him. To reflect this goodness in his very nature. And it seems like it worked. Not only did he create man to be like him, but he created man to be with him. To have fellowship with him. To not only reflect his glory and his goodness, but to enjoy 
his glory and his goodness. He put Adam and Eve in this garden filled with everything they needed. And he talked with them and he walked with them. He was with them and they were with him enjoying his fellowship, enjoying his glory. And he declared everything very good as we read in verse 31 of chapter 1. God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. So mission accomplished. I plan to create a people like me who can be with me. And he's done that, right? It seems like that should be the end of the story. He did what he set out to do. We know, of course, that that's not the end of the story. Because he sets Adam and Eve in this garden and he says, in order to enjoy this, in order to be like me, in order to enjoy fellowship with me, you need to trust my promises and you need to obey my commands, right? Trust that all of this provision and bounty is good for you and do what? The only command he gave them? Work and keep it and don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The story is no surprise, it's very familiar to us. Genesis 3, all of creation is thrown into turmoil by Adam and Eve's rebellion against God's good plan that he had made in his wisdom from eternity past. Satan comes into the picture we see in verse 1, the serpent. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 13, we read this. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Notice, God didn't say that, did he? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delightful to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Notice the serpent deceives Adam and Eve, by bringing them to doubt God's promises. The one thing they were supposed to do is trust God's promises. And the serpent says, no, no, no. Is that really how it goes? God's holding out on you. He knows that if you eat from this tree, you will have something better. And he doesn't want you to have it. He convinces them to doubt God's promises and to disobey, trying to secure ultimately their own blessing. Remember, the storyline is God chose this people to create them, to be like him and with him as a way of blessing them, as a way of displaying his glory. And here, right here, we have this turning away from the promises of God and turning to our own devices to try to secure blessing. Adam and Eve didn't want destruction. They wanted to be like God, what they were created to be. They simply doubted God's way of doing it and said, this seems better to us. This seems wiser to us. Notice the fallout from this. The fallout from this is that their ability to be like God, naked and unashamed with one another, was broken 
Because what happens in verse 7? The eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Their ability to be with God was broken too, because look at what happens in verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Good news. Exciting, right? How many of us would love to hear Yahweh walking in the cool of the garden in midday? They hear this, and how do they respond? The man and the wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Their ability to be like God and their ability to be with God is broken because of their disobedience and their distrust of his promises. They have sinned against God and they have brought curse upon themselves and all of creation. That's where God goes next. He judges the sin with the curse. We're going to get to verses 14 and 15 in a minute. But look first at verse 16. He first, when he's cursing the man and the woman, curses the woman in a very specific way. He says in verse 16, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband and he shall rule over you. Notice God made fulfilling her purpose. To be like him, by being fruitful, by multiplying, by being in peaceful fellowship with her husband. God made this harder by cursing it in response to their sin, right? God made her filling, her mandating creation harder because of the curse. And he did the same for men. Look in verse 17. Verse 17 to Adam, he says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it, you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. It's because of their sin They were cursed. And Adam was cursed in his ability to work and keep the ground. And instead, it would bring thorns and thistles forth for him. And it would be difficult work. It was joyful, peaceful, bountiful work in the garden before the curse. God didn't say, you don't have to be like me anymore. I'm going to abandon that purpose for you. But he said, it's going to be hard. It's going to be under a curse right now. He also made it, their sin also made it impossible for them to be in God's presence. The end of Genesis 3, we see what happens, right? We see God cast them out of the garden. The Lord God said, Genesis three twenty two, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim 
and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This wasn't just about Adam not being able to access the tree of life. It was about Adam not being able to access the life-giving presence of Yahweh. God had cast them out from his presence in judgment for their sin. Because God himself was holy and could not be in the presence of sin without destroying it. So their sin and rebellion brought judgment, but we know also it brought promise. And that's where I want to focus in on here in verses 14 and 15. Verse 14 of Genesis 3 says this, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, and above all beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, that might not make much sense to you. That's okay if it doesn't. Here's what's happening. This serpent, Satan, has come into God's sanctuary, the garden. And Adam and Eve did not stop him. They instead gave in to this temptation. And so God first judges the deceiver. He judges this serpent in verse 14. And then he makes this promise in the midst of his judgment in verse 15. This is commonly called the Proto-Evangelion, or the first gospel. This is the first promise of Christ. Okay, look again at what it says in verse 15. I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, my creation who I created to be like me. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring... And her offspring. He shall bruise your head. And you shall bruise his heel. Another way for saying bruise his head. Is saying crush his head. This is a promise. That's picked up on in the rest of the scripture. Of a victorious offspring. Who will overcome. The curse of the serpent. A victorious offspring. Who will triumph. Against the serpent. This is picked up in the new testament. As a promise of Christ. But I don't want to go there today. I want to help us look at how this promise then echoes through the rest of the story because what God does, he takes his pre pre-time plan from before time in eternity past, his plan to create this people to be like him and be with him. And the way he unfolds that is through promises of blessing overcoming the curse of sin. And we see that in Genesis in the first couple chapters. He promises this victorious offspring who will triumph. This puts God's people up to ask two important questions. And I want to think about those questions as we look at Genesis 4.1. So Genesis 4.1 says this. Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. I have gotten an offspring with the help of the Lord. I have gotten someone with the help of the Lord. What would Eve have been wondering? If God had made this promise that one day your offspring will be victorious over the serpent where you were not, will crush the serpent's head, 
will wage war against the serpent's offspring and win, Eve must have been wondering, is this him? Is it now? Is this the time? We know, because we're familiar with the Bible stories, to not put much hope in Cain. Right? But Eve didn't know that when Cain was born. Eve would have been wondering, is it him? Is it now? We know from the story of Cain and Abel that it wasn't him. And it wasn't now. Right? Because what happened... God had regard for Abel's offering and was displeased with Cain's offering and Cain became jealous and Cain crushed his brother. Instead of the offspring of the woman crushing the head of the serpent, her offspring crushed her other offspring. It looked like the serpent was winning. It showed that Cain was not actually the woman's offspring that was promised, but is an offspring of the serpent. And the evil of sin is still strong in the heart. It would have crushed Adam and Eve's hopes, especially as they considered, is this the one? Is it now? They would have been downcast. And we should be too when we're reading the story. Because we should be hoping that Cain is the one. And yet he's not. We read more of the story of Cain... But I'm going to skip that part and bring us down to verse 25 of Genesis 4. Because in light of the darkness of this curse, where it seems like the serpent is winning, hope springs back up. The hope in God's promise. Verse 25, Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born and he called his name Enosh. And at that time people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So what do you think Eve is thinking now? Is this the one? Is this the time? People are calling on the name of the Lord. This is a new offspring that the Lord has appointed for me. An offspring who will maybe crush the head of the serpent. And be victorious where Adam and I were not. We should be thinking that too. Is this him? Is it now? It doesn't take long reading into Genesis 5 to know the answer is no. Right? You don't even have to read Genesis 5. Skim for repeated words. So and so. So and so. It's a generation of Adam. And then you get to the end and he died. And you get to the end and then he died. He lived so long. Fathered so and so. All the days were so-and-so, and then he died. The curse is playing out in Genesis 5 with death, 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 death. Which is what God said would happen if they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, isn't it? Death would reign. And it seems like the serpent's winning because there's lots of offspring, but there's no victory. It's all death. If you know the story of Genesis 5 through 6 you know that Noah comes up in Genesis 6. And if you know why Noah comes up, you know it's not because of happy reasons. Right? Noah comes into the picture because humanity is so wicked 
so overcome with curse that God judges humanity by wiping them out nearly completely. Look at Genesis 6 verses 5 to 8. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man who I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. What's the problem with that? God has promised in Genesis 3.15 that one day the offspring of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. That's a problem if he decides to wipe out every living being, isn't it? God cannot keep his promise. This is a threat. Man's own wickedness is a threat to this promise being fulfilled. And yet, verse 8, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Even in the midst of darkness, there's this glimmer of hope. And there's this question, is this him? Is this the one? Is it now? Is this the time? It seems promising. Noah is faithful even in the midst of everybody else turning away from Yahweh. Noah builds the ark with his sons and brings his family in. And through his trusting in God's promises and obeying his commands, his whole family is brought safely through the floodwaters of judgment. And his humanity, the seed of the woman, is delivered safely as well. Looks like this could be the one. And it could be the time. But if you know Noah's story, the part that they don't usually tell in Sunday school is after the ark, right? He builds a vineyard, and he makes wine, and he gets drunk. And he exposes his nakedness. And his sons see it. And then he curses one of his sons. Not the one that's going to overcome. That's going to crush the head of the serpent. But instead, a sign that they're still waiting. There's still, the serpent still seems to be winning. Genesis 11 leads us up to the Tower of Babel. Where God's people, instead of spreading out into creation and filling creation with the glory of the Lord, they consolidate in one place. And they say, the way we're going to be with God and we're going to be like God is we're going to build a tower that's so big that it'll make a name for ourselves and it'll even reach up to God. What wickedness. The serpent seems to be winning. So God judges them and spreads them across the earth. And then we get to Genesis 12. In the midst of all of this hopelessness, the spiral of curse and the apparent victory of the seed of the serpent in Genesis 4 to 11, we're meant to ask the question, is this hopeless? Will God indeed keep his promise or is man just too wicked? We're not going to be able, we're going to, we're going to win. Because God is impotent to keep his promise. If you know the story of the Bible, you know that's not the case. You know that God is setting up his plan. And he carries out that plan. He carries forward his promise. 
in Abraham. Right? Genesis 12. In Genesis 11, just before Genesis 12, we're introduced to Abraham. His name, Abram, at the time. And he's part of the generations of Terah in Genesis eleven twenty seven and following. We see the story of Abram. We're introduced to him. And then right away we see God call out to him in Genesis 12. He says this in Genesis 12, 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse and in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. What God is doing here is he is carrying forward his promise to bless His people that he has created. By overcoming the curse of the serpent with his offspring. Notice here, he tells Abraham, go from your country to a land I'm going to show you. This is the promised land. We know this is developed from later in scripture as the promised land where God will be with his people. God is setting in motion the wheels now to be with the people that he has created to be with him. Go from your land to a land I will show you. And then he says, in verse 3, I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. He is saying, I am going to not only be with you, I'm going to make this place where you can be with me, but I'm going to turn you into a blessing, which is what I do. In other words, God is saying, I'm going to restore Your ability to be like me. By being a blessing to others. And how is God going to do this? That's sandwiched in between in verse 2. I will make of you a great nation. God is going to accomplish this through offspring. Right? We see Abram and we wonder, maybe this could be it. Is this the one? Is it now? And we see this promise for offspring And we think, maybe not. But there's a problem with this promise. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless the earth through your offspring. The problem is in Genesis 11, 30. Sarai, Abram's wife, was barren. She had no child. In other words, God picked a real winner to accomplish his purposes here. Right? A barren woman. That's not going to work if your promise is that one day the offspring or children will be the one to crush the head of the serpent. Why would God pick a barren woman to do it? The answer, I believe, is in what God is doing. He is, through this promise, to crush the head of the serpent. He is overcoming The curse of sin, right? He is destroying the source of sin with promise of blessing. He is overcoming the curse that is a result of sin with blessing. And he's putting on a drama by doing that through this barren woman. Through Sarai, who cannot have children, is cursed with a barren womb 
God is blessing her with offspring, overcoming this curse in her womb to dramatize what he is doing in all of this. It's meant for us as we read this story to see that, to see that God is keeping his promise to overcome curse with blessing. God promises this to Abram. And then what does he have to do? He says, go, believe my promise and obey my command. Go. And what does Abram do? Genesis 12, 4. So Abram went. He goes. He believes God. He trusts him and he obeys. We read in Genesis 13 and 14 about some of Abram's story, some of the circumstances he goes through. And what we notice from that is that it takes a long time. This, this promise doesn't happen immediately. This promise doesn't come right away. It's not like Sarai instantly gets pregnant. She doesn't. And it takes a long time. And so what happens in Abram's heart? The same thing that happens in our heart when it takes God a long time to fulfill his promises. He grows weary of waiting. He begins to doubt. Instead of waiting and looking for the promised offspring... And saying, is this the one? Is it now? He says, maybe it's too late. And in Genesis 15, 1 to 3, he says, maybe it's Eliezer. He says this, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I'm your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But, Abram said, oh Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Is it him? And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Verse 4. God comes to Abram and comforts him in his waiting. He says this, verse 4. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. God makes Abram a promise by pointing to creation and saying, this is how much I'm going to keep my promise. This is the extent to which you can believe me. God reaffirms his promise and comforts Abram by his word of promise. Right? And says, this is not the one, this is not the time, but the one is coming. And the time is coming when this promise will be fulfilled. When you look back and your offspring will be as numerous as the stars. The question then for Abram is, will you trust me? Will you obey my commands? Will you continue to hope in this promise? And Genesis fifteen six, Abram believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. He trusted him. Now, we know that Abram did not trust him perfectly because if you continue the story, you know Abram tries to accomplish the promise on his own by having a child with his servant. But you know also that God continues to be faithful even where Abram is not. We're not going to continue the story further, but what I want you to see is that this pattern of hope in a promised offspring who will be victorious over the seed of the serpent. And this pattern of threats to that promised offspring. 
persists all through scripture. It's meant to continually get us to ask the question, is this the one? Is it now? And it's meant to funnel our attention as we read God's word, as we hear these stories. It's meant to funnel our attention down to the promised offspring, to the time, to Christ, to his incarnation and life and death and resurrection, funneling our attention towards the time of his return. It's meant to get us to ask, is it him and is it now? And those are questions that are going to be more unpacked in our Advent series. The question, is it him? Is a question of who is this offspring? That's a question that Charlie is going to tackle next week for us from Isaiah. And the question of, is it now, is a question of when will these things happen? How long, O Lord? And it's a question that Thad is going to tackle for us the week after. We ask these questions, is it him, is it now, who, how long? As God's people ask those questions, they struggle with doubt because we don't see the whole picture. And we grow weary of waiting for God to fulfill his promises, right? And we struggle with disobedience because when we see enough of the picture, we think maybe we can make it happen. Maybe we can, maybe we can help the process along a little bit. The Lord just needs a little boost. We struggle with doubt and disobedience and try to take matters into our own hands and secure our own blessings. And what we're meant to learn from this pattern in Scripture, from these questions, who and how long, what we're meant to learn is that the way we secure the blessing of the Lord is by continuing to trust His promises, by continuing to obey, continue to trust that God will be faithful even when the answer is, it's not Him. And it's not yet, right? Because God's people couldn't give up on trusting him just because their expectations weren't meant. Neither can we. We continue to trust God's promise of the gospel that promises that we will be set free from slavery to sin when we trust in Christ. And even as we continue to struggle with sin, we look back on that promise and we don't doubt that we're free even though we live in the already not yet, right? We continue to trust that if Christ has saved us, then we are a new creation in Christ Jesus. This stories in the Bible like this empower us to trust and hope in the gospel. That's what we're meant to do. That's what they're here for, to teach us these things. Because as we trust and hope in the gospel, and as we walk in obedience by following Christ's commands, we experience the blessing of God's promises. We experience the blessing of his sustaining grace and we wait well for what we wait for, right? We wait and long for Christ's return and this is how we do it, by trusting and obeying. This is what we remember in Advent. Advent is this season for remembering these patterns in scripture of God's actions and learning how to walk through our waiting in the midst of now, right? Because we're not waiting for Christ to come his first time. But we're trying to live in light of his promises as we wait for his return. So that's what we do in Advent. That's what we remember. Let's pray. Father, thank you for stories like this. That show us just so clearly... 
how faithful you are, how fickle we are, how much we need reminders like this, how much we need a reassurance of your promises. Thank you that we can come to your word and see what you have done. Thank you that we can look back on these things and say, you were right. It is good to wait on the Lord. God, would you help us learn to do the same even now in our waiting as what we look forward to. As we long for you to move in the midst of our present circumstances and as we long for you to return. Would you help us learn to wait this way too? Pray in Jesus' name.